talk tonight for the Oxford branch of the British Science Association. Um, Adam has very recently finished his doctorate in atmospheric physics, um, and perhaps is more well, perhaps well known for his role of climate Adam, which he does in a lot of social media, in Twitter, and a YouTube channel, and is some of the videos have had up to 25,000 hits. So, without further ado, I'll hand over to Adam, who's going to talk about why he doesn't believe in climate change. And then, sorry, <laughs> um, and yeah, open any questions afterwards. Thank you very much. So, as was mentioned, I work on climate change. I've worked on climate change for a few years. And when you, know, when you meet a new person, they, like, one of the first things you do if you're just making small talk is you say, oh, what do you do in life? So, um, a little while ago, I was in a pub in the King's Arms, just like around the corner, um, sitting outside with a mate, sharing a table with an, a couple of guys, and one of them, in this way, said to me, what do you do? And I said, I work on climate change. And he said straight away, oh, I've got something that will disprove your climate change. Which, straight away, like quite an audacious start to a conversation, I think. Firstly, like, the idea that... Like, He's going to be able to disprove in a few seconds what lots of scientists have worked on for many years. But also this idea that it's my climate change, that it's something that I've claimed in some way is mine, just by telling him I work on it. I haven't even said what I do. Um, and so what he said to me is, uh, look at this drink I've got in front of me. Uh, it's got ice floating in this drink. It's gin and tonic. I've got ice floating in this gin and tonic. Um, when the ice melts in like half an hour, the level of the drink is not going to go up. It's not going to go down. And yet, climate scientists like you are telling us that sea levels are going to rise, and this is going to be one of the most catastrophic impacts of global warming. But look at the ice floating in the drink. It's not going to change the level of the drink. Why should the ice floating in the sea change the level of the sea? So, I mean, I brought some ice and a drink, and we've got about half an hour. So, <laughs> uh, let's, I'm going to try and do this as fairly as possible. That's the pint level, yeah? yeah? Okay, cool. Uh, now, it's quite warm, so if I go to have a drink, remind me to drink my water and not the cider, otherwise that will all be messed up. Um, but, okay, so this guy in the pub, it's like quite an extreme example of this kind of interaction, but it happens to me all the time. Like I tell people I work on climate change, and one of the first things they'll say, maybe not that extreme, but they might say, oh, what's your opinion on climate change? Or, oh, so do you believe in climate change? And this is really weird to me, because like, when I've worked on other stuff, and I did a physics undergraduate, and I worked on, I don't know, uh, field theory or something, no one ever said, I mean, probably because they weren't interested, but they never <laughs> said, what's your opinion on field theory? Or when, when I used to work as a software developer, no one said, do you believe in computers? Uh, just, I mean, do you mind me asking, what do you do? I'm a software developer. Yeah, so like, <laughs> if I said to you, what's your opinion on software? Yeah, so it feels weird to have it framed in those terms, and it also feels weird because it, when someone says, so do you believe in climate change, because it doesn't feel like science should really be about belief, it feels like it should be about assessing their evidence. I first like, encountered this kind of feeling when I started my undergraduate, um, you know, you, meet, you start university, you meet people from all different backgrounds. Um, I, um, I remember having a chat with this girl, Hilary, who I'm still friends with now. Um, and for some reason, we're talking about atoms. And Hilary said to me, oh, you know, I don't believe in atoms. And I just remember being so surprised, not only because she didn't believe in atoms, but also I didn't know it was a choice. Like, I didn't know, like, you could be, like, or oh, I'm in camp atoms, I'm in camp no atoms. But I didn't know it was like being left or right on the political spectrum like this. Um, and I had a really similar feeling when I met this guy called Jeremy, who told me I don't believe in climate change. I, I didn't know really at that point that it was something that you could choose which camp you were in, that lots of people did choose what camp they're in. And actually he was the same. He was really surprised in almost exactly the same way that I did believe in climate change. So why is this... This word belief, when Hillary said, I don't believe in atoms, actually, I'm, by the way, I'm still friends with Hillary. She tells me she does now believe in atoms. So that's fine. <laughs> I'm not friends with Jeremy anymore. I don't know how he feels about climate change these days. Um, 
But yeah, this word belief really, it, I don't know, it seems wrong to me. So this is the Google definition of belief. Um, I didn't look up and look for the English dictionary, to my shame, but this is what Google says. Um, belief is defined as an acceptance that something exists or is true, especially one without proof. And there are a couple of things in that which don't feel right to, to, towards the scientific method. First of all, acceptance. In science, I don't like the idea that we just accept something, we'd assess something and evaluate it and try and work it out from there rather than just, oh, I accept that, that's true. And without proof, okay, like you can't really prove something absolutely uh, in science. But you can look at what the evidence points towards and you can look at what the overwhelming amount of evidence points towards and you can assess your position from there. So this word belief just doesn't seem right for a scientific point of view. Um, and so, okay, going back to atoms, why don't I believe in atoms? I don't believe in atoms because there are certain things I know that point towards atoms. I know that if you mix a couple of chemicals together, they, in, they react in a particular ratio, which points towards the idea that there's some kind of fundamental uh, atom, some fundamental particle at play. Um, I know about uh, Rutherford scattering, which points to the idea that uh, matter isn't just homogeneous, that there are nuclei within matter. And I also know about the, uh, I always forget the name of it, it's Einstein in 1905 uh, looked at Brownian motion, sorry. Um, so in Brownian motion you look at little uh, grains of pollen, say, moving around in a fluid, and the way they move points towards the fact that there are these tiny in, invisible players uh, at play, uh, causing the pollen to jiggle about. Einstein actually linked the movement of a grain of pollen to the number of atoms that exist, to Avogadro's number. Uh, so I know about these things, and I know that we've built a huge wealth of science on the idea that atoms exist. And so when Henry said, I believe in atoms, it just seems strange because it seems in contradiction with what we know science is pointing towards. When Jeremy said, uh, I don't believe in climate change, I felt the same, but then analysing it, what evidence did I personally have at that point that climate change was happening uh, and uh, was caused by humans? Well, at that point, when I was like 18, starting university, I didn't really have that much evidence. I didn't really understand, understand the basic science behind climate change. Maybe at that point I did kind of believe in it just because my teachers at school and the newspapers I read said climate change was happening. Um, and so at that point I guess I did believe in climate change. But I think this sort of changed when I was an undergraduate because although I didn't study climate change myself, I was surrounded by physics professors and physics doctors who weren't political in any way. They didn't have anything to gain by saying, oh, climate change is happening, climate change isn't happening. There are people who really like getting to the bottom of a scientific question. And they always explained to me that climate change was a serious thing that was observed to be happening and was caused by humans. And although I didn't understand science, I trusted these well-informed scientists. I think for most people, this approach to like understanding science is more or less enough. You can't, for every single scientific question that matters, uh, have to understand it ourselves from first principles. It's just not practical. If you go to the doctor looking for some medicine, you can't understand exactly why the doctor's going to prescribe you that medicine he is. You just have to say, well, this doctor's been to medical school, spent a lot of time working on this, he's got no reason, I hope, to give me arsenic instead of a medicine that's going to help me out. Um, so you trust the doctor. But, so for normal people, I think, just being like, okay, serious scientists, say it's happening, very good. I think that's enough. But I don't think I am a normal person. I'm, uh, I'm a physicist. And like, physicists are weird people who feel like they want to get to the bottom of a question. We don't, you know, we're not happy. If there's something we care about, we want to understand it. Um, and so I went back to university and started studying climate change as a doctorate. I started my PhD in atmospheric physics. Um, and one of the first things I learned was that the climate is really complicated. Um, and people say this quite a lot, but it's just huge. You're looking at like fluid dynamics on such a huge scale, but you, don't, you can't just consider like the really massive stuff. You've also got to consider tiny processes like how clouds form and convection takes place, while also being able to consider huge gravity waves which take place throughout the planet. Um, but what was really striking to me 
is that throughout all this complexity for the climate, the key science which points towards climate change happening and being man-made is actually really strikingly simple. So there are just a few kind of points which uh, lead to that conclusion. Um, and they are, I guess, uh, that carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas, and greenhouse gases help keep our world warm. Uh, that we've added more carbon dioxide to the atmosphere, um, and that as a result of this additional gas which keeps the world warm, the world would naturally warm, just like putting on extra clothes would keep you warmer than just having a jump on. Uh, so like running through those really quickly, that and the evidence that points towards them. So greenhouse gases keeping the world warm, carbon dioxide being an example of them. Well, we know that because if that wasn't the case, we don't know why the temperature is what it is. We need, to, we need that understanding of greenhouse gases to explain why I can go outside on a day like this with this jump on. Like, the world's temperature doesn't make sense without an understanding of greenhouse gases. Uh, okay, we've added more greenhouse gases to the atmosphere. Okay, well, we know we're burning stuff, but how do we know that's actually making greenhouse gases in the atmosphere go up? Well, uh, we can measure the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. We can see that it's been rising for the last uh, 50 years or so. Um, it could be rising because of something not caused by humans. Actually, we can look at the signature of the carbon in the same way you're carbon dates something. We can look at the signature of the carbon that's being added to the atmosphere. We can see that it's coming from fossils. We can see it's coming from the burning of fossil fuels, actually. Um, okay, finally, this will make the world warm up. Just adding more, more of this thing that keeps us warm will make the world warm up. Well, is that happening? I mean, if this science is so simple, why is there such a like, big kerfuffle about this thing? Like, why, like, if that's it, like, do the observations not match up? Is that what's going on? Well, if you look at the atmosphere and if you look at the ocean, they're both heating up. There's like, energy going into the system. And the fact that both the atmosphere and the ocean are heating up means there must be energy coming into the system from outside. Because, I mean, the atmosphere could heat up if the ocean gave it some heat, or the ocean could heat up if the atmosphere gave it some heat. But if they're both heating up, that implies there's some extra energy coming in from outside. Well, maybe that extra energy could be coming from something else, like the sun could be getting bright, or something like that. Well, we look at all these things that could be affecting the climate, which aren't caused by humans, for example, the sun getting brighter. And they're just not doing what they need to be doing in order to explain temperature increase. For example, the sun isn't getting brighter. Um, so, it's, so that already points towards the idea that uh, it would be humans causing this, uh, because no natural factor that we know of is pointing in that direction. But there are other fingerprints as well. So in climate science, we call these fingerprints, these things which like give you a clue as to like what. We observe something in the climate around us, we look for fingerprints in that that might point us to the culprit. Uh, so there are other fingerprints, other clues, which lead us to think that uh, climate change is caused by humans, not one of these natural factors. Uh, so, for example, there's the fact that the upper atmosphere is cooling, while the lower atmosphere is heating up. This is because the lower atmosphere is absorbing uh, the radiation that it's giving off more and more efficiently, so less of it's reaching the upper atmosphere. The upper atmosphere doesn't have this radiation getting to it anymore to keep it warm and help it warm up. Another thing is precipitation, which I worked on. Uh, if the world were warming up as a result of radiation coming from the sun getting uh, brighter, uh, then we'd expect particular precipitation patterns because of how latent heat uh, is absorbed when water evaporates and is released in the upper atmosphere when it condenses and rains out. Uh, there's a third one I thought I wanted to mention as well. Uh, let's see what was um, Oh yeah, so this is actually, I think, quite a useful one. So, um, the way carbon dioxide is making the world warm up is effectively sort of insulating it better. Um, now this, this way of making the world warm up would work equally well in the daytime and in the nighttime. It doesn't matter whether it's daytime or nighttime going to stop heat escaping from the Earth. But if this was a result of some external influence like the sun, we'd expect, uh, we'd expect this to only really be taking place in the days. The days would be getting warmer, we wouldn't really see an effect in the nights. Actually, the nights are warming up faster than the days are warming up when we look at the climate. Okay, so observations match this simple theory. So that leaves the question, why is there this massive disagreement? Um, 
why is there so much doubt when the key information is really well understood by scientists? And the reality is that most people don't learn about their science from scientists. Like, I have been in a really privileged position to like, study physics and then study atmospheric physics and like, meet scientists who have strong, strong understanding of climate and then to build an understanding of climate science for myself. But most people don't have access to that. Most people learn about something like climate science from politicians and from journalists. And this isn't ideal. I'm not just saying that because I'm a scientist and I'm really vain. But <laughs> it's not ideal from, like, from the public's perspective. If you ask people from the public who do you trust most on climate science, on climate change, uh, the majority of them will say uh, climate scientists. So uh, let's see the exact numbers. So 69% of members of the public say they trust scientists in climate change. Uh, I mean, obviously, I would like that to be 100% as a climate scientist, I want everyone to trust me. But 69 will have to do. Compared to just 10% of people who trust politicians. Um, and yet, politicians and journalists are where most people are getting their climate science from. Well, what's the effect of this? Like, what's the result on like, the British population? Well, if you look at uh, climate change publications, you just look for the ones which take an opinion on whether climate change is, called, is happening and is caused by man. So you like, count all the ones which say, yes, it's happening and it's caused by man. And count all the ones which say, no, it's not happening or no, it's not caused by man. Then 97% of those papers support the idea of climate change. Uh, and now if you compare that to the British public, if you go out into the street and say, do you think climate change is happening in this called by man? 56% of the British public will say, uh, yes, I think it is. So that leaves 44%, quick maths, 44% um, that either think it's not happening at all or think it's happening but not caused by man. And 97% and 56%, it's this huge, it's, people often call it a consensus gap, a gap between what's happening in science and what's happening in public consciousness. Um, and, I mean, why, why is something like this happening? I, I mean, so, like, it seems weird that uh, I've got some little examples. But, I mean, the reality is that when it's convenient, the press do lie to us about certain things. They do mislead us on the truth. And uh, so do our politicians. That's not... Oh. So, I mean, our politicians do as well. And actually, they do are like probably I, like they're better on climate science in general than the Conservatives I would say very broadly um, but that is an example of the Labour politicians telling the truth um, and uh, this, this happens in climate change as well this is uh, front page news uh, big climate change forward but I put forward in quotes so no one can see them um, so it's this huge consensus gap because we're not hearing about climate change from the people who actually understand science, we're hearing about climate change from politicians and press who uh, might have different things at stake than telling uh, the science as it is. Uh, so now I feel like I'm in a bit of an awkward position because I, I feel like I have an understanding of the basic climate science and I understand where um, our confidence that humans are causing the climate change comes from. I also understand why many members of the public uh, aren't really sure about climate change because there's a lot of misinformation out there. There are a lot of people saying different things. Understand if you didn't have access to scientists, what you think about climate change is going to depend on who you speak to in the pub or what, what you see on the news or what your local politician says. Uh, so how do we start to tackle this? And I think the best way is that I mean, climate change is something we're really quiet about. It's a really big deal. I think it's going to affect a huge amount in the world around us. It's already affecting a huge amount in the world around us. People don't actually talk about it that much. I think we need to have more conversations about climate change where we discuss uh, the science behind it, we discuss the consequences of it, and we need to be non-judgmental when people disagree with us. If someone doesn't believe in climate change, we need to understand where that comes from and tell them why our position is different, and hope that an honest conversation like that can, can help redress the balance of it. But I don't think we're going to do anything by not talking about climate change to address this consensus gap. Um, so where does that leave the guy in the King's Arms who uh, 
who was going to disprove my climate change. So, I mean, it's not melted entirely, but I mean, presumably it's melted a fair bit. It's a bit warm today. So, would you say that is more or less at the kind of level? More or less. Okay. So, kind of what's right. Uh, ice in the glass doesn't make the level of the drink rise. So, does that mean sea levels aren't going to rise? Like climate change and massive hoax. I mean, genuine, well, not genuine question. <laughs> the question to the room. But does anyone know why, how this applies to the oceans around us? Absolutely. Yes, exactly. So, not all ice is floating in the ocean. So, absolutely, ice floating on uh, the surface of the sea when it melts will have very, very little effect on the sea levels. But there's lots of ice. Uh, that's on land in the form of ice caps and mountain glaciers. When that melts, the water runs into the ocean and then the ocean goes up. Also, as water heats up, it expands a tiny bit. We're not going to notice that with a pint glass, but with something as huge as the ocean, it can make a really big difference. Uh, so, I mean, what's really interesting about this example in the pub is that he's right, he's got the like, basic science about the ice and the drink right, but the conclusion is wrong. Like, you know, hopefully, if people like that, you can have an honest conversation with us about understand the gap in the scientific information. Well, what actually happened in the conversation, I said to this guy, who said to me really aggressively, like, here's something that will disprove your climate change. I was like, oh, well, actually, there's ice and land, and, you know, the ocean expands. Um, and he said, oh, fair enough. And then we didn't speak to each other again. <laughs> really? You know, he was so vehement. He was like, I've got something that will destroy this climate scientist, all his evidence in one shot. And I was like, in a minute, I explained it to him. I don't know whether he's just doing it to shut me up. But he seemed genuinely like to accept that maybe I had a point. Um, so, I mean, I'm really glad I get to have these conversations I seem to work in climate, because then you get to like, hopefully redress the tiny bit of balance. I mean, I always have the answers, obviously, but like, then I learn more. So I really enjoy these conversations, and I feel like if you care about the climate or you care about science, you should be trying to have these kinds of conversations too. Um, and eventually, hopefully, we can fix this consensus gap issue, um, and then we can start asking like even more interesting questions, like how is the globe warming going to affect different parts of the world at different times, and most importantly, I guess, what the hell we're we actually going to do about it. Uh, so that's all I have to say. Um, and I really like the conversation if anyone's got anything they want to say. Start going through the we, so far it's about four points. So like I'm, I'm gonna lose track of like each thing if we is it right if I start like responding? Because I might I might just forget that it's things you've said otherwise. Um, so I think the first thing you said was about um, the medieval warm period, is that right? Um, so it's important when we look at past climate that we assess it as much as we can on a global scale. 
a particular part of the world can be warmer than usual because excess heat can get to that part of the world from, say, the oceans or from, say, other parts of the world. So, for example, last year was the hottest year um, on record since about 1850. Um, but it was unusually cold on the east coast of America. So if you lived on the east coast of America, you could quite easily say, well, that wasn't a particularly hot year. But it's about global warming. You have to look at a global picture. And when we do look at a more global picture for Earth's temperatures, as much as we can from reconstructions, dating back as long as you mentioned, there's no evidence that the globe has been this warm for several thousand years. Uh, when we look at things like um, coming out of ice ages and returning into them, and the pattern of carbon dioxide, uh, well, we understand fairly well what caused these things, the changes in the Earth's orbit around the sun. Uh, we understand what's causing those things to take place. We can look now, we've got the techniques to look now and see whether those orbits are changing. And they're not. They're not changing in the way that we understand they did to cause uh, the ice ages and uh, the interglacial warm periods. Um, you mentioned carbon dioxide goes up uh, during these periods, and you're absolutely right. And actually, we can't explain why it got so warm as it did if we don't take carbon dioxide into account. Um, so carbon dioxide is believed to have been released as a feedback to these changes in the Earth's orbit that um, then amplified this warming during this period. Mm. So actually, these uh, warming periods are, I think, quite strong evidence that carbon dioxide does play a role in warming the atmosphere. I think maybe the final? I'm not sure <laughs> where I've got to in the list of things, but you also mentioned the idea that the greenhouse effect is saturated, that at a particular concentration, uh, the carbon dioxide can't absorb any more radiation. This isn't the case. So uh, the way uh, carbon dioxide actually works in the atmosphere is something I glossed over a bit in the talk. But we have the Earth's surface, which is emitting uh, radiation, which intersects with these absorption bands you mentioned of carbon dioxide. Um, so it's emitting that radiation, which the sun doesn't really emit. Um, so uh, Earth's surface emitting this radiation you can think of the atmosphere in lots of thin little layers. So you can think of the first layer uh, absorbing all this carbon dioxide. Um, and then it re-emits it in all directions. Some of those go down, some of them go up. Next layer, carbon dioxide absorbs all that um, radiation that comes to it, re-emits it in all directions, if, if carbon dioxide is saturated in this way. But eventually you get towards the top of the atmosphere. And then eventually the atmosphere gets cool enough and thin enough that the radiation is finally free, it can finally like, escape into space. Uh, oh, the, the radiation is coming from the Earth's surface, mm -hmm. and if it's not being trapped um, at low levels, um, why should it be trapped in the spectrum? No, no, if, so at each level it's absorbed, so I wouldn't say it's trapped. Each, each level of the atmosphere absorbs the carbon dioxide and then re emits it in every direction. So there's still more CO2 going up and there's CO2 going down. So this level absorbs it, we emits it in all directions. So there's still some going up. Um, same at this level, same at this level, same at this level. Till eventually, the atmosphere is thin enough that it can't absorb it and the CO2 just escapes to space. When we increase the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, this level now has enough carbon dioxide, this very top level now has enough carbon dioxide to absorb some CO2 of its own and reflect it in all directions. So what we do is this top level gets warmer and reflects more radiation back down. So chain reaction all the way back down, each level gets a bit warmer because of this top level now being able to intercept that carbon dioxide. So although if you looked in, say, a tube and just shone some light through some carbon dioxide, this saturation effect you mentioned might seem to be the case. So if you actually look how the atmosphere works, uh, then we see that... Uh, because the very top level of the atmosphere like this isn't saturated in this way. Adding more carbon dioxide can still have an effect. And this science isn't debated in any scientific forum I've seen. I think it's, like, it's a subtle question and it's a really interesting question. But um, the idea that carbon dioxide could add temperature to the Earth was first suggested in 1900 um, and was dismissed because of pretty much this exact question. People said, no, this doesn't make sense. Um, any warming effect that carbon dioxide would have would be saturated. It wasn't until I down somewhere. It wasn't until oh, 1938 that someone called Guy Callender came along, um, and he worked out the, uh, this idea of all these different levels and the fact that even if the bottom level is saturated, what matters is what's happening at the top of the atmosphere. 
And really since then, I think people didn't really think about the consequences of this for a long time. But since then, there hasn't really been a scientific debate about uh, whether this, uh, this effect is saturated or not. And I've certainly never, in any seminar or any conference I've been to, ever heard people debate whether the, um, the CO2 effect is saturated or not. Um, so that was uh, answering your first question. Should we hear from someone else? And then like, if everyone else runs out of questions, we can come back. OK. Um, so there have been ice ages. And I assume that is, well, again, assumptions. I assume that is because of the rise of um, greenhouse gases in the atmosphere that eventually you get a point where it crashes and then it refreezes, you get an ice age. But is that going to happen? I, again, assumption that would happen anyway. Ice, ice ages? Yeah, another yeah. ice age would happen. Yeah, it's possible that another ice I, I mean, it's not just possible, I think most people who studied how the ice ages happened, which I think were mostly considered to be caused by uh, changes in the Earth's orbit, at least initially they're triggered like that. Oh. Um, uh, although like greenhouse gases played like a feedback effect, so like greenhouse gases amplified the signal of that. Um, um, uh, so global so yeah. warming doesn't have a, wouldn't have really have a result, wouldn't have a, uh, an impact here? Well, I mean, it still would. I mean, in a really simplistic I could model of it, but you could see that maybe that add together. So, like maybe that, um, like the cooling effect of uh, of moving slightly further away from the sun might be counteracted by the warming effect of adding carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. And maybe if we were entering an ice age now, it would be like a really great idea to pump loads of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. But unfortunately, we're not, and we're pumping loads of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Um, so. Um, and I, just, I guess, one final thing on the idea of carbon dioxide during ice ages. Carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere are unprecedented, even compared to the warm periods we saw between ice ages. So um, it's something we really need to worry about, I think. Um, uh, did, I don't so, know. So, <laughs> so, I mean, CO2 levels, I mean, are they unprecedentedly higher than they've ever been, like, that we can go back with, have there been other... No, I think, that, I think it's uh, believed that like a long, long time ago there were carbon dioxide levels which were higher. Uh, we were talking like several ice ages ago, In, from my understanding of it. Uh, so, so pre-modern day humans? Oh yeah, yeah, by a long, long way. Oh, yes. right. yeah. Definitely in human history, these CO2 levels are unprecedented. Uh, um, something you probably do find understandably disconcerting is when scientists appear to be changing their minds. Um, those of you who read science will probably have noticed, or it's echoed in the, in the general press now, just in this last week, people have reevaluated the data of the global warming cause, quote unquote. Many people have accepted that the rate of temperature rise at the Earth's surface had actually been rather less for more than a decade now than previously predicted. Didn't mean physics was going wrong, of course. The CO2 is going up, but it was thought that much of the heat was going into the mid-ocean depths. But just this last week in science, you know the paper I'm talking about, um, this has been re-evaluated. And um, no, sorry, we made a mistake in um, evaluating the data properly. There was no global warming pause at all. And would you agree it is disconcerting even for the quite educated public when the perceived facts change like mm. that? I think that definitely, when it's perceived that facts change, that's definitely disconcerting. I think what's important to remember is that we can't just stick a thermometer in the earth. We can't work out exactly what its temperature is. We have to work that out from looking at loads of thermometers on land, loads of thermometers in the ocean. Uh, the thermometers in the ocean, some are attached to boats, some are attached to buoys. So how you combine all this data? Sure, but you've had billions, I mean, not you personally, mm. but billions of dollars and decades to do this. Mm. Uh, you know, it's not like there's been one scientist wandering around with a thermometer. So it's quite a shock that we can find at this late stage that but, it's been that wrong. But I mean, as I'm, personally, as I know, just, I've just come from London tonight, I know temperatures convey over very short distances, and how we combine temperatures is difficult. And in any scientific field, you're constantly finding out new things. For example, recently, we found out that temperatures measured from boats 
are less accurate than te temperatures measured Sorry, temperatures measured in from boats. Uh, less accurate than temperatures measured from buoys. And so what they've done in this new result is uh, weight those two things slightly differently. So they give slightly more credence to the temperatures measured from buoys than they do to boats. I can see that a result changing, especially changing in uh, a particular direction that certain people are opposed to, can be disconcerting. But it's important to remember a couple of things about this change. Firstly, there are lots of different places in the world that assess the temperature of the Earth, and they all do it in a slightly different way. So the idea that there's one perfect way of measuring the Earth's temperature is just not true. So different centres will disagree about which year has been the hottest. So last year, for example, uh, everyone, I think every, all the different centres agreed that last year was the hottest year on record. But, you know, they came out in order and said that. that I mean, bad reporting would just say last year is the hottest year on record. Good reporting would say, okay, NASA now say it was the hottest year on record. Okay, the UK Met Office now say it's the hottest year on record. Uh, and go to all the different centres and look at it like that. The reality is there are different ways of doing this. There's no one way you can just measure the temperature of the Earth. The second thing is the change they made is really subtle. Like, it's a really small change. And this just points to how fragile this pause was in the first place. This pause wasn't statistically significant. If you looked at the error bars, and if you look at, if you actually measure the trend over that period, you can't just get a number. You have to look, you know, you have to get error bars on any number you get out. And if you look at the error bars, there's no actual evidence that the, this pause was actually inconsistent with the long-term warming trend. There's no uh, statistically significant evidence that there was even a pause in the first place. This is before this adjustment. This tiny little adjustment, just saying we should emphasize boys a bit more than we emphasize ships, has now changed this result, as you say. I mean, climate scientists never really uh, were very stressed about this pause. It was something that has been spoken about mostly because people who believe that climate change isn't happening used it as evidence against it. Um, it was, you know, we could debate, it's not quite a pause, but a slowing down in the rate of temperature increase at sea level. Because it wasn't, you know, it's not quite such a tiny thing. I mean, you can see it on the map, but if you actually measure the trend and look at your error bars, there's no evidence from the error bars of the trend that it's without the normal warming, like beyond the normal warming uh, rate, because there's so much... I mean, when you work out the error bars, it takes into account the variation in the climate. And because of that variation, you can't say robustly that the warming had slowed down during that period. Um, so I definitely understand that uh, results changing can feel quite strange. But it's important to remember that the way we measure the Earth's temperature is a subtle thing. It's not just shoving a, a thermometer in the middle of the Earth. And the different centers do that differently. And they're updating their techniques all the time to try and take into account new information. Um, and the centre which has updated those temperatures has been completely honest about how they've done that and anyone can challenge why they've done that and anyone can check that the reason they've done that what they say they've done is actually what they've done so I mean it's, it seems like it would be very strange to, to make this change uh, when you're being so completely honest about it and people can check you're working out completely I'm not suggesting it's fraudulent. But you just think... This is a, yeah, a shock. I think it's, so much effort. It's, a subtle, it's definitely a subtle point, I think, because like, I think people do just think that Earth has a temperature, but actually it's something we calculate quite subtly. Um, yeah, just a quick advice to this idea being expressed over here, I think it would be more troubling if scientists didn't change their minds sometimes, because then I think the idea of climate change would take on this kind of character of religious conviction or belief as we've been telling it, so I think actually it's kind of reassuring that methods have been kind of constantly reassessed. Um, then I had a question, not about science, but about public engagement. I think one of the reasons that public, more public disengagement, really, I think one of the reasons the public find it really hard to engage in climate science is that we feel completely powerless um, we're talking about something as massive and complicated as the climate. How do you, as a scientist who works in public engagement, try and bridge that gap? How do you try and get over people's powerlessness and the powerlessness that they feel? Mm. So, I, mean, I know it's a massive question. Yeah, it's a really difficult <laughs> question. Um, so I guess. Uh, like that's presuming you're speaking to people and they're like, yeah, climate change is happening, but it's something I try not to think about because, yeah, oh my God, exactly, what do I yeah. do? 
I think it's important to remember in cases like that that we do that we're in quite a unique and fortunate position in that we can see that something is changing in the world around us. We understand what's causing it, and we actually have the tools at our disposal to do something about that. Um, and so, although it's really scary, uh, and maybe it'd be a lot scarier if we didn't know how to use a nuclear reactor or how to make a solar panel, um, it's still really frightening, but the reality is we know what needs to be done, and we have the tools to do it, I think. Um, and so, I think people need to be reassured that at least that's the case. And then people need to be motivated to, to take personal action, to do things that they think will personally make a positive difference to the climate. Um, but also to make their voice heard, both by having conversations with people around them and also conversations with their elected politicians and even journalists who they feel aren't representing the voice that should be represented. Um, yeah. uh, I'll see if there's a new hand. There isn't, sorry. <laughs> I'll come back. Yeah? I had two points. One, first was I remember the comment where you said that there needs to be more conversations about climate change because people aren't talking about it. I kind of think that it's almost the opposite. I think people do talk about climate change a lot. So I'm just kind of wondering where that kind of perception comes from. And secondly, the point around uh, the acceptance that the climate, climate science is based on, on UK data. I don't guess where I'm going with this. How, how do you think that transcribes to and so just remind me of the first question again. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty so the interesting. The first question was when you talked about um, that people aren't talking about Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Much, but it kind of seems like... That, the opposite is the case, yeah. sure. So um, well, I think... I mean, it's hard for me to judge because I talk about climate change a lot. <laughs> um, <laughs> but... Um, when I look at certain, for example, extreme weather events, which we know have a link to the climate, for example, extreme rain rainfall is made uh, uh, more frequent by uh, increasing temperatures because the amount of water vapor in the atmosphere increases as temperatures increase. Uh, so uh, our best estimate is that the floods were made 20% more likely by climate change. I, I don't know how many people in this room knew that, but the floods that happened here in Oxford were made 20% more likely by climate change. I don't know whether that information is getting out. And when we look at a political debate, and we've, like, in this country we've had a few political debates lately, I mean, climate change has been really notable in there, in that it's a huge issue that is intersectional, it affects everyone in society, not just in this country, but in every country. And we don't hear anything about it. So, like, I think... I mean, for me, and maybe in scientific communities, we do have these conversations, and they do go places. But I think overall, these conversations are quieter than they need to be. But, I mean, I don't have, I don't have like, robust yeah. evidence. But just the fact it's not... I feel like if it was an important question to people that people were discussing, our political leaders wouldn't be able to get away with having a few debates without it coming up. I think it did come up, but Caroline Lucas... Not Caroline Lucas, Natalie Bennett brought it up. Um, and then your second question, sorry, remind me? It was around the, um, the stats you pointed out around the um, people that believe that the climate scientists are based on the UK data, but around other transcripts. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. So actually, I don't know whether we should be proud of this. We're ahead of American terms of belief on climate science, but we're not that far ahead. So it's, I mean, it's a very, I would say it's a much more polarised issue there. Uh, people don't just talk about climate change there. They, really go for it and argue about it but um, belief in climate change isn't actually that far beneath British belief, I just think uh, people who don't believe in climate change there don't believe it a lot stronger than the people who don't believe in climate change here and it, ha it is a much more politicised issue in America and uh, I think um, and it really is associated with whether you're a Republican or you're a Democrat um, and I think that the way, and this exists in the UK as well, I think there's uh, if surveys of people who are Conservative and Labour show that people um, who vote Labour are more likely to believe climate change is happening and it's man-made. Um, it's nowhere near to the same extent. Um, but I think in both countries we need to start tackling this. And I, I think the reason that this is, I think the reason that this has happened is because uh, when we talk about the solutions to climate change, it tends to be the people on the left who are shouting them out. 
So people on the left will shout out things that people on the left like, but this needs collective action, it needs the international community to do it, you can fix it through raised taxes and things like that. And they talk about it in a way that would appeal to people on the left. But I don't think in any way these issues are incompatible with the right, um, people's right of centre politics. I think the idea of protecting the environment, or, or environment around us, if you're religious, the idea of protecting God's creation. Uh, I think these ideas, there's nothing about them that is inherently political, in my opinion, either in the ideas that the climate is changing in man-made, or in the ideas about how to solve them. I think there, uh, there can be proposed solutions uh, which exist on the centre-right. And so I think the way to tackle that, I think traditionally when people on the left see people on the right who uh, don't think climate change is happening, they just shout their solutions louder. They just shout their logic louder and their solutions louder. I really think what people on the left need to do in situations like that is help promote the voices on the right uh, to understand climate science, understand why it matters, um, but understand why it matters on their own terms and have solutions uh, on their own political terms as well. Um, so, yeah, so I think it's a problem that needs to be approached both in the UK and America, but you're right, America is a very politicised place. It's kind of in a, in a weirdly kind of perverse way. Is it almost, I mean, as, you, as you kind of have more of these conversations like you were kind of suggesting, does it almost kind of lead to that more polarising politicised debate that you're having in America because you're having, because you're having this discussion with I think if you have them in an open way, it doesn't need to polarise things. I think if this guy in the pub had said, here, I've got something to disprove your climate change, and I said to him, I don't know, piss off. <laughs> like, um, which I, I met someone on the tube once. This was like eight in the morning, and so I wasn't in my most chatty moods. And she, um, I told her I worked on climate change, and she said, oh, the, doesn't climate change ha- change naturally? Uh, and like listed a few reasons why she didn't believe in climate change, which were all completely reasonable. and. If I'd been in a good mood, what I should have done is like explain why they are reasonable and what the scientific evidence said about them. But I was in a really bad mood, and I got off at the next stop even though it wasn't my station. <laughs> <laughs> so that is what not to do. And I think so. We need to like not make this something we take so personally because like it's understandable why people have different opinions. So when someone does, we need to have an open, friendly conversation with them and try not to like build up this uh, this. Uh, polarization. Yeah. Uh, we've not heard from you, so you're getting a preference. So. This is hopefully a quick question. Okay. When you were talking about ice ages, and you said it's uh, caused by the change in the orbit of the Earth, mm. I was wondering, do you know what the evidence for that is? Mm. And it's like circular argument that people decide. So they see the ice ages and then be like, oh, that's all that must have changed. I'm not actually sure, to be honest. So I don't, I don't know much about It's called paleoclimate, so climate before we start observing it. And I don't know that much about it myself, so I'm afraid. I yeah. <laughs> if only so I don't get embarrassed next time, I have to talk. Yeah? Um, oh. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's like, and it was really enthusiastic with the office. So just when you say that it's like, um, it's 20% more man-made, that's related to climate change, I think that's exactly the sort of thing that the public's interested in, and that's the kind of thing that gets into newspapers and that kind of thing. So what exactly do you mean by 20% more man-made? I mean, if I got up on a Tuesday, because I'm more 20% more likely to get flooded that day, Mm-hmm. I mean, I think, so that's the question, mm-hmm. what does the 20% mean? Mm-hmm. And then my comment, if I can just make it on the end, is that that's, I think, where the problem of science has with engagement with the public. It's the use of statistics, and politicians, and the government, and everybody who's got an angle, have used them completely. Mm-hmm. And if you've ever called us into more or less, you know what mm-hmm. I'm talking about. Yeah. But yeah, so what do you mean by 20%? So 20% more likely, uh, the way you work that out is you look at... Um, so we don't have more than one Earth, we don't have more than one UK to do experiments on. So what we do is we make uh, models of the climate, just like my glass was a model for the ocean. We build models of the climate which try and simulate all the relevant physical processes um, as best as they can. So these models aren't aiming to recreate the fact the world warmed. What they're aiming to do is recreate uh, the fact that when you heat up water it evaporates and that. Uh, water turns into steam and trying to simulate the fluid dynamics that take place on the Earth's scale. Uh, these, pr- 
these models aren't perfect, and it's important to remember that. And hopefully, I preface what I said with our best guess is 20%. But what we, what we do with these models is we look at how realistic they are at simulating, say, rainfall over the UK. And these models tend to be like pretty good at simulating rainfall over the UK, not so great uh, in tropical regions. Um, and then we run these models hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. Um, and we run them uh, half the time uh, with just uh, the world as best as we can, as we can simulate. So what year was it, 2012, 2013? The best we can simulate that winter, we try and simulate it as well as we can with everything we know that was happening. All the volcanoes that had happened recently, all the carbon dioxide that was in there, all the methane, everything. Then we do the same experiment, but we leave out all the things that humans pumped into the atmosphere. So we leave out the extra methane, the extra CO2, the extra aerosols, things like that. So these experiments aren't perfect, but what they give you is a sense of how often extreme rainfall events are likely to, are likely to be. Um, so, um, and what that, this experiment found, I think, was that what was previously a one in a hundred year event, a one in a hundred year storm, so something that only, uh, yeah, would happen once a century, would now happen once every 75 years, I think. Um, so that's, that's where that number comes from in these models. Uh, something that would once just happen 1% of the time is taken up to whatever uh, 1 in 75 is. Um, I don't, so this can't give us... It's kind of like, I understand how you model, but I'm wondering, it's the way you use, how you express that to people. <coughs> um, should I be worried about 20%? Mm. Like, for example, the kind of what we do, mm. we would say more like the same thing it's a significant effect, mm. or a 20% could be a non-significant mm. effect, but something mm. else could drive it to 20%. Yeah. And that's, I think, the confusion. We, mm. we don't know if we should be alarmed by it or not. I think it's easier for things like heat waves, which are, because they're connected to their temperature so directly by a heat wave, uh, we can, uh, the statistics tend to be more dramatic. And there was, um, I think, last summer, I think it was last summer, maybe the summer before, in Australia, there's a huge heat wave, record breaking heat. Um, and then when they did exactly this kind of experiment, but looking for temperature, they found that um, this kind of heat wave, pretty much the, the likelihood of it happening without global warming was vanishing. They concluded that you can more or less say this kind of thing wasn't happening. And maybe that's a kind of like, for events like that, that kind of language is really useful. I think how we use, how we use the language for things where it is 20%, where it's a sort of subtle scientific point. I mean, I think that's a really interesting question. And like, if, if you've got any strong thoughts on how we can do better, like, I mean, that'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, think, I think we can come to you now. Yeah. yeah um, so, uh, greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, mm -hmm. are we, we're at record-breaking levels. Can we, can we, can we reverse that? Mm -hmm. So, there are some ideas to like, so there are a couple of ways we could reverse that. The first is uh, to try and find a way to get the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. Um, so these are techniques where we uh, use some kind of vacuum to suck the CO2 out of the atmosphere. We don't really have a very good vacuum like that. So, but, no, yeah. Sorry, I was... We if, we, about, if we were to, if we were, as a, as a po global population, yeah. were at to, at best, a best hope of just levelling the amount that we're pumping out. So we just stop pumping it we out? We just, not, oh. not stop, yeah. level. Yeah. So, because I assume that the amount of uh, the amount of effect that we're having is increasing on a year by year. Mm -hmm. You know, population's rising, you know. So I, I, I assume that it is, that the amount that we're pumping into the atmosphere on a year by year basis is increasing. Yeah, in general. So yeah. if we could just, at least at, at best level, so mm -hmm. it was never going to increase again, mm -hmm. would it get better on its own? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, the, what sets the temperature of the Earth is the total amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Right. Carbon dioxide sits in the atmosphere for hundreds of years. Right. So as long as we're still pumping carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, the problem's getting worse. Even if we were to lower the amount or to keep the amount fixed, I mean, it's worse than that because the amount's going up each year. But even if we were to just say, okay, the amount we emit in 2015 will be the amount we emit in 2016 and so on, that's still making the problem worse. Eventually, 
if we're not going to just get the world's temperature to keep increasing and increasing uh, until something else stops, stops it from increasing, um, and I don't like to think about what that might be, um, uh, we need to eventually get to a point where we stop emitting. Um, or uh, we find a technology where we can suck carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. These technologies are really expensive. They're, like, the idea is generally quite safe. If we can just get the carbon dioxide out, then it's just taking us back to where we were. The idea is like, not terrifying. They're really expensive, much more expensive than, say, I don't know, stopping emitting. Um, the other thing that we could do, and I think this is like a bonkers idea, um, is to find another gas we can emit into that atmosphere um, that cools that atmosphere down and pump that in. So, like, as if we've not made things bad enough, we'll just, like, add... An so people often talk about sulphate aerosols, which volcanoes chuck up into the atmosphere. So when volcanoes erupt, they put loads of these sulphate aerosols in the atmosphere, and for a little while afterwards, the world cools because these aerosols reflect the sunlight. Um, now, this seems like a really bad idea because uh, it's never going to perfectly undo what carbon dioxide did. And for certain things like rainfall, which matter a lot to people, we know that they definitely won't undo what carbon dioxide did. Um, so these, these general ideas to like, oh, come on, let's keep emitting, but like we'll find some fix, uh, they're called geoengineering ideas, ideas to like engineer our way out of the problem. So they're either really expensive and safe, or uh, really quite cheap, but really dangerous. So uh, I think we shouldn't, we shouldn't count on either, either one of those, I think. Um, Oh. Yeah. <laughs> again. Well, when you're talking to the great British public mm-hmm. about burning fossil fuels, can you explain to them that anything you do in the UK have infinitely, infinitely effect on the total world emission of carbon dioxide? In the case of China, and the USA, and Brazil, whatever we do in this country would have an infinitesimal effect on the total carbon dioxide. One question. Second question. Um, since we have 20% oxygen in the atmosphere, and presumably every molecule of oxygen in the atmosphere was once part of a molecule of carbon dioxide, does it mean that in pre-start times there was 20% carbon dioxide in our atmosphere? Um, so the first question was... Uh, sorry, <laughs> I'm having difficulty keeping track of multiple questions. Oh yeah, sure. So. Um, actually, the UK is an interesting example because we don't operate as a single con- country. I mean, in the next few years, that might change, but at the moment, we're in the EU. Uh, and the EU uh, has a European-wide climate policy. And what the UK chooses to do affects that European-wide climate policy. And the EU as a whole is indeed one of the largest emitters in the world. Uh, so I don't think you can view the UK in isolation. You also can't view it in isolation because everyone just uses everyone else as an excuse in these negotiations. So it's purely an act of good faith. It's bad to point fingers at everyone else and say, this is your fault, we're not going to do anything about it. Especially if you look at the cumulative emissions that have taken place since the Industrial Revolution, which we are quite largely responsible for in the UK since the Industrial Revolution got going roundabouts in the UK. I think you can't also point the finger quite squarely at China. Because it's not like China's using all its energy purely for itself. They're using it to sell products and in- industry to countries like the UK. So I think we need to take that into account when we evaluate what China's doing. Also, China is hugely populous compared to the UK. So even if you say all oh, their emissions are their fault, if you divide it by the number of people in China, it's, re- it's small compared to what we, what we use in the UK. So on a per-person basis, I think, we as individuals do have a responsibility in the UK. Um, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, what was your second well, question? My question was, in the prehistoric Earth, mm. was the 20% oh, yeah. carbon dioxide, in, in which case, why did we have a, run, a runaway effect like Venus? So, I, don't, I, I know that there have been times, uh, a long time ago in prehistoric, as in before, uh, like pre-photosynthesis, for example, which was introducing oxygen into the atmosphere, that there was, yeah, more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Twenty percent. I I don't know actually. I don't know. Well, would you like to say that every molecule of oxygen in the atmosphere was once part of a molecule of carbon dioxide? Well, I, I, to be honest, I don't know whether that was the case or not. But that's how, how else would oxygen form except by photosynthesis? I mean. 
I follow your logic and I appreciate it, but the, the reality is I, I don't know for sure. And there could be things that, um, that I haven't, so I don't want to just say yes. I mean, it's quite possible you are right. I don't, I'm not trying to dismiss what you're saying. I'm just trying to say the reality is I don't know all the processes that have gone into introducing oxygen into the atmosphere. Um, so I, I don't want to don't want to make a claim that I can't I can't back up. Do you think the public will be impressed if you took the difference between 400 parts per million the present level and 20 percent, which was the previous level? That, that's an enormous. But you're you're looking at a time before photosynthesis. That's right. You're looking at a time before photosynthesis. Then the, I mean, yeah. there weren't there weren't human civilizations or cities. No, no, really, or, no humans, but there the, the were green plants and algae forming carbon dioxide, oxygen from carbon dioxide. Sure, yeah, no, so I understand the logic that there was once more, much more carbon dioxide than there was now, which I believe was the case. I don't know whether it was 20%, um, but uh, I, I don't know what the conclusion we're meant to draw from that is. If the conclusion is we're not meant to do anything because the Earth had a lot of carbon dioxide before, then I think that's bonkers because, you know, there weren't, there weren't people there to experience it. I... I mean, my, I, it, it was very, I'm sure it was very disruptive to have a dramatic change like that then. Um, but there weren't, you know, there weren't societies then to be disrupted by it. There, there were simple, simple organisms and uh, must have changed the, the way those organisms operated. But I think the way humans exist on the planet, uh, you know, a, a change in carbon dioxide and a change in temperature now going to have a lot bigger significance to humans than one which happened millions and millions of years before humans were around. Well, the vast higher oxygen level wasn't there in that period. Which? Sorry? Oxygen, oxygen, not carbon dioxide. Well, the vast sizes of the animals and everything that was around then. You mean at, what, at which point? Well, in the prehistoric time, or prehistoric monsters, um, yes. vastly increased size. So I think before the oxygen level was much higher. I think before that, even still, yeah. um, which I think is uh, what this uh, gentleman is talking about. Um, I think before that, still before photosynthesis uh, arrived, yeah. I think photosynthesis was what introduced oxygen to the environment. I think that's what you're referring to, isn't it? So I think there have been times when oxygen levels have been higher, but there've also been times when there wasn't really much oxygen about at all. But on a point of information, it, that ties in with something called the faint young sun paradox. Mm. A very long time ago, the sun was less powerful than it is now. Mm. So it actually took, we're puzzled by how the Earth managed to remain warm then, mm. and higher levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere to compensate for the fact that sunlight billions of years mm. ago was less. Mm. Kind of makes sense. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Uh, it sounds like a really useful thing to look up there. Faint, is, what's faint young sun? It's called the faint young sun. Okay. Paradox, okay. So if the population of the Earth is going up to 9 billion from 6 to 7 now, is that going to make a lot of difference? I mean, how many people are going to warm up the atmosphere? <laughs> Uh, so do you mean like just from the people themselves? Well, uh, it's like the forecast. We're going up to about nine billion by mm. twenty fifty, aren't we, or something? So I mean, I think populations are going to continue to increase, and if people still consume what on average people consume today, uh, in fact, like consumption per person, I think is increasing on a global level. Mm. But even if they just get that kept that constant, if we don't change where our energy is coming from, then yeah, that's absolutely going to make a difference to the climate. Um, okay, should we take what was? Is take a pretty strong half an hour. It's just a um, Do you think there's a point of no return? And if so, would you be bold enough to suggest a time frame? <coughs> so it depends. So return to what? I mean, I guess. to a point where, without complete, I mean, where we're irreparably damaged. Irreparably yeah, damaged. Damage the earth. <laughs> um, so I guess for for ourselves, yeah. Because you know, it's going to sort itself. So out. where 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 you draw, where you draw that level is pretty subjective. Like where for a long time we 
people have said uh, two degrees warming. If the world doesn't get warmer by two degrees, by, so if you don't warm the world up by two degrees, then that's safe. Um, there's, there have been lots of reports which have suggested that should be lowered to one and a half, and it sort of depends exactly what you care about um, in, in the climate. And uh, we have quite a lot of uncertainty. We don't know exactly how two degrees is going to play out in different parts of the world. For example, we don't know exactly when certain ice sheets will be lost irreparably. Um, so it's very hard to say, but let's say two degrees is our target. Um, I think to get to two degrees, I'm trying to remember the right numbers, but emissions need to be falling by about two or three percent per year. Um, if, if emissions kept falling at about two or three percent per year from now until forever, then we'd hit two degrees about. For the last few years, the last year as a bit of an exception, the last few years they've been rising at about 2% per year. So we're heading in pretty much exactly the wrong direction to hit that target of 2 degrees. Um, so the, the target of 2 degrees is achievable uh, based on our understanding of both the climate and of uh, techniques to make energy without fossil fuels. But right now we're not achieving it. Um, so I think to close that. I'm sure I'll just stick around for a little bit in case people want to grab them, but he will maybe get them on the next train to run away as we I think we can all agree. Thank you very much for an amazing talk and a great discussion. And thanks everyone for the conversation that they've thrown up. So, yeah, thank you, Adam, very much. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Details of our upcoming events can be found at our website, www.oxfordcybar.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Oxford Cybar and on Facebook, British Science Association Oxfordshire Branch.